Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author and screenwriter and also director of the centre. And today I am joined by one of our tutors who is also an author and expert on all things Welsh. And so the theme of our podcast today is Wales. So I'm going to attempt a greeting in Welsh. Apologies to any Welsh listeners. Shimai Shidachi. Which is, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? (laughs) Claire Fayers um, has written a number of books for younger people, as well as more recently a collection of Welsh myths and legends. So Claire, do you want to tell us first of all about your journey to being a writer? Because what you're doing is what many of us writers end up doing. You you do your your original fiction, but sometimes you also do these sort of collections and and other things um, for publishers. So do you want to explain how you got to be where you are today? Yes, well, it was a very long and tortuous route, I think, with lots of detours through Mirkwoods and down in big holes and clambering back out again. But and I, I have always loved stories. And right from a child, I read voraciously and made things up in my head all the time. Uh, I, I think I found it was just an escape from everyday life. And the worlds I created in my head was something that I had control over. And as a child, you have very little control over your own life. And I think I loved that sense of actually being in charge of something. So I would spend ages making things up and then making my characters do things and then thinking, oh, what if they did something else and then go for something else? So so I think as a child, I was naturally pointed in that direction. Although as a child, it never occurred to me that this was something that I could do. Yeah, I don't know if you were like me. I used to look at a shelf of books in the library and, and just assume everyone was dead who wrote it. Oh, absolutely. They, they I don't were, know why. They're all or, dead. You know. <laughs> or they were they were all rich men with beards and pipes and fancy jackets. And they were certainly weren't they, they were they were no sort of girls from South Wales. It was no. all it was all very yeah, much people. And I'm thinking, yeah, people like me, I thought, yeah, it, it didn't even occur to me that it was something that I could do until I left university. And I went through a period of unemployment, was just wanting something to fill the time and saw a course on freelance writing and marketing. I thought, I might as well have a go. 
And so I got started actually writing for magazines, got the first things published, and it was just such a thrill to actually have something in print that it took off from there. Wonderful. So I was reading the introduction to your um, book of Welsh legends, and you have a very telling phrase about wherever you tread, you're stepping on stories. So we'd like to expand on that a little, because I think this is something that uh, inspires a lot of fantasy writers, that though we are creating other worlds like Tolkien, what we're really working walking through is a sort of idealised version of our own world. Um, so, you know, Middle Earth is full of bits of Oxfordshire and Yorkshire and the Alps and places like that where he walked. Um, so would you want to say how that works in terms of myths and legends? Yes, I think um, in terms of Wales has got this great tradition of myths and legends. And it's always something I didn't actually know much about when I when I started writing. I was just writing the kinds of stories I wanted to, to tell the sort of things that I had in my head. And then gradually, as, as people started identifying me as a Welsh writer, I started feeling more Welsh, I think, because of that. I'm looking into the Welsh stories. So many of them are actually tied to the landscape, which is something I absolutely love about them. You, I mean, your standard European fairy tales, a lot of them could just happen in a, in a wood or in a castle or some sort of generic town. In Welsh ones, it's that river over by there has got a monster in it. And the monster is called the Avanc. And if you go close to the river, it will leap out and eat you. Or that mountain is where the devil used to play, play cards with Giant Jack. And so much of it is specific to the locations. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these fragments of folk tales as well with odd bits of the, the devil pops up all over the place in Wales. We seem to like him as a, a sort of trickster character. And he was forever frightening people who didn't go to chapel and that kind of thing. <laughs> and the, the lakes will have the fairy folk and monsters and there were dragons in the mountains. Almost every place you can find an associated legend with it. It's as if people just looked around where they were and thought, oh, I wonder what that could be. I'm just drawing inspiration from the landscape to, to tell stories, which then gained a life of their own. Yeah, I think perhaps actually if we did but know that some of the ones you mentioned are generic, like a forest or whatever, probably do have a similar origin because uh, I was struck a couple of years ago, I was visiting my sister in Cyprus and they were friendly with um, local Cypriots. Mm -hmm. And one of them, George, was telling me a story and it was go it went something like, oh yeah, and that beach down there was where Aphrodite uh, landed uh, from her shell ship. And she walked up to this spring up here and such and such happened. So even something like the, the Greek gods and those myths and legends to modern day Cypriots still have a, a real An actual local resonance. Yes, I, I think some of the, some of the better known stories and the ones that have traveled everywhere maybe almost become generic because each storyteller will put them into whatever their own location is or just say a forest far away. I think perhaps the Odyssey is a bit of an exception yeah. in that because a lot of the uh, mm. monsters are connected with dangerous places for sailing. So it's a bit like oh, a, yes. a navigation aid, don't go near this peninsula <laughs> yeah. and Rubdis, you know, because your ship will wreck. Yeah. Uh, it seems quite sensible warnings. Um, and I also think that we do, 
I don't know about you in your own family, but I think we create stories too, even now. It hasn't obviously reached the level of a myths and legends passed over to other people, mm-hmm. but car journeys, for example, that you would do regularly when we had small children, we would tell stories about things that you saw en route. Yeah. We had a particular one. Um, if you go down to the southwest in this country, there's a, a sort of wicker man um, who points the way. He looks a bit dilapidated these days. And so we started t- telling stories about the tubby man of the southwest because he's got a bit of a mm-hmm. belly and linked him up to the Angel of the North, which is a very fine Anthony Gormley um, mm-hmm. statue up in, uh, in Newcastle, that area. And um, every time we passed it, we'd have a new story about this creature and just because it's a landmark. And I felt that that was tapping into that urge to tell stories, pass the time, entertain the children. And which I'm sure is where a lot of these myths and legends come from. I think they do. And a lot of the modern urban myths of the, um, I think Terry Pratchett in at at least one of his books and probably more says that they are, the the notion that these stories keep happening. Yeah. As long as there are certain things in the story that resonates, there there is the, the, yes, the the girl in the car whose boyfriend gets out and then she hears a thump thump and realises that somebody is banging his severed head on the roof or, Oh yeah, the the horror stories. Those those are the horror ones. They they sort of nobody knows where where they came from or who originally came up with them. I think so. Going back to Wales, I think there are um, a couple of characters, recurring characters. This is not the Babinogian um, level of storytelling. I'm I'm talking more about the fairy tale level. That, but I feel particularly Welsh. There is a particular Welsh kind of dragon. I yeah. think. And there's also the creatures in the mines. I know places that have mines, mm-hmm. uh, Poland, um, up up north around here. I'm sure anywhere, Germany, anywhere that has mines have their little creatures in the mines, but they're also little creatures in the mines in Wales. Do you want to sort of perhaps tell us yeah. a little bit about those two groups? So, yeah, the, the dragons, obviously there, there is a very famous story of why the um, Welsh flag has got the dragon on it and the notion that they were two two dragons who were fighting it actually does date back to the Mabinogi the, in the Mabinogi there is one story in which the red dragon and the white dragon are causing chaos and they are basically given a load of meat to drink and when they're thoroughly drunk they, they cut them off and stick them in a cave and then later on um, it's um, Vortigern, the king of the Britons, in just, um, just after Roman times, is trying to build a fortress there, and he doesn't know that there's the cave in the hill with the dragons, and the fortress just keeps falling down all the time. And they find out that they've got the two dragons that are fighting. And the idea is that the red dragon represents the sort of plucky Welsh people, and the white dragon is the invading Saxons at the time. But and of course, the, the Welsh flag was not. Um, it was not chosen as a, as a symbol because of that story, but it was also like later on when people said, oh, why is there a dragon? These sorts of fragments of stories came up, and now you've got this whole legend about why there is. And, yeah, the tappers in the mines, I, I've got that, the, the, the puka, they call them in Wales. You, you've got them in Cornwall as well, and as oh, you yeah. say, anywhere you've got mines, there, there, will, there will be strange noises in the mines and echoes of sound. And 
yes, people came up with the the notion that there are there are people there, and in the Welsh mines, often they would tap to either warn you of danger or to, to show you where the where the best seams of coal, gold, whatever it was they were mining would be, and so you could sort of follow the sound to to find a new rich seam or something. So, are Welsh dragons going back to the dragon theme? Are they largely threat? figures or are they sometimes uh, a sort of funny benign so uh, Tolkien for example mm -hmm. in Farmer Giles of Ham his dragon this is obviously a modern yeah. relatively modern story turns out to be quite friendly whereas Smaug is not yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so is there a range of dragon types in Welsh stories I think not so much I think generally the dragons are pretty indifferent to the fact that there are people Oh, so right. dragons are like the original inhabitants back when Wales was just full of magic before the humans moved in and they were dragons and they were monsters and they were the, the tallest tag, the, the fair folk. And they're largely indifferent to people coming along as long as, as, long as we don't get in their way and annoy them. I think it's, then, it yeah. is fun to think generations of these things because I remember growing up, you, you look about similar vintage to me there was a fantastic animation on tv called Ivor the engine oh gosh with the dragon doing the, yeah. the engine yes so the dragons i think they the eggs are hatched in this the steam the coal yes the furnace bit of the steam engine firebox or whatever it's called um don't write in please if you're a steam engine expert <laughs> i will look it up at some point um that's that was extremely sweet and cozy. So that's my impression of well, well really, really nice, friendly little, yeah. little dragons. Yes, there are. Yeah, there there aren't. Yeah, there aren't so many stories that that have them. Surprisingly, despite the fact that we have one on the flag, and they yeah they do tend to be that they they are just creatures that are from almost from another world, and our lives don't really interact with them that much. I have flag envy. I think so. If if Scotland, for example, doesn't go independent in you know the next decade or whatever, uh, and they have to rethink the Union Jack, I really think there's a huge case of bringing the Welsh dragon it's right. Dragon right. Yeah. You know, let's let's let's, let's mm. rebrand if we if Wales hasn't gone independent as well. Let's rebrand. That'd be great. Uh, we could have a, a white dragon and a red dragon. That would be just good. Actually, two on the fighting on the flag. That would be really good. Well, hopefully not fighting. Or just facing off against each other on the flag. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so there we go. Uh, flag makers out there. That's that's my tip. So, um, is there any other sort of favourite Welsh folk tales that have particularly interested or intrigued you outside these dragon and tapper tales they think well you you have the Mabinogion of course and this year I was lucky to be invited to actually write a story for the, the new collection called the Mab which Matt Brown and Eloise edited where we each basically 11 different children's authors we each took a story and rewrote it with children in mind which was yeah I yeah I had one which was a story which was a bit of a non-story about a man who had a dream so I had to construct a narrative, but then other people had the really bloodthirsty ones and I'm trying to make them suitable for, for younger readers was, was fun. But the thing I've really become interested in is the little bits. I've discovered quite a few Victorian gentlemen who used to travel around Wales and they would just look at people when they stopped in the place and ask for the, the stories, ask people to, to talk to them, tell them about the things they knew. 
and recorded them and you've got just lots of little detail and it's all based around the local areas and the local people then and it's stuff that doesn't tend to get told that seems as though they're following in the footsteps of the brothers Grimm, <laughs> who i think perhaps one of the early well i suppose it started with the ballad collectors like percy mm. ballad collections in the 18th century if anyone studied 18th century literature they there's these um ballads that somebody called percy collected which has some fantastic lots of scots stories in there and others um because ballads were one of the original ways obviously of transmitting yeah. stories yeah. i'm sure you yeah. know yeah, it is very much so and very much in the in the same tradition the people who just became interested in welsh folklore and legends and just yeah traveled around and collected a load and, and published them did they? Do you sense a, a Victorian gentleman's editorial hand on them, or have they managed to keep the flavour? Um, depending on the collections, they they are different because you 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 have some which were written by sort of American people. There, there's a. I am she trying to remember the man's name though, possibly William Griffiths or something. But he, he was Welsh heritage. I think his grandparents had emigrated to America and he came back over, ended up in Cardiff for a while and started collecting the folklore. And you get some of the English Victorian gentlemen very much. We we will now talk to the peasants and <laughs> see what see what the peasants will tell us. And there's very much a sort of the we, these are the rough superstitious folk who are, who are telling us their things. But there is a, a Welsh um, a Welsh reverend and school inspector who's um, he, his essay is I, I've mentioned him in the inter introduction to the Welsh fairy tales I think and he compiled an essay that was the this is the prize winner at the Iceford in the one year and whenever he went around to do the school's work he would ask to be pointed towards the oldest people in the place and he would just sit and chat to them and he wrote down all sorts of things. And that there, there is no condescension or no sense of sort of I'm, I'm collecting these curious tales in that. This is just one person talking to another and writing down what they say. And that that, that was a really wonderful collection. So the Ice Steadford, just for um, people who aren't familiar with it, is a cultural festival that happens once a year in a Welsh, it moves, doesn't it? It moves it from um, town to town and it has, you know, choirs and well, you, you tell us what it has. Yes, it has a bit of everything. It's a real celebration of, of music, poetry, um, storytelling, writing. They have some poetry competitions where they will give the poets a theme and then send them away for half hour and they come back and read out what they've written in that time and you know, that, that kind of thing. I've been I've been once. Uh, I went when actually my daughter, my my eldest child was six weeks old and I was carrying her in a sling because she was tiny tiny and I, I never had so many people come up to me speaking in Welsh because I think they thought I'd come to sort of baptize her in oh, I, don't, I don't actually have any Welsh ancestry that I'm aware of but I wish I did but um, yeah it was a wonderful event mm -hmm. so Claire um, looking at all of this and it's one of the great sort of bodies of stories that we've inherited what do you think has carried over into our modern fantasy writing. Have you seen any, I suppose particularly the Mabinogian, that must be stories from that, which 
have are percolating through the the rock strata and be coming out into different, yeah, different things. Yeah. So I mean the the most famous um Mabinogion example of course is Alan Garner's the L service, which obviously is old itself now, but very yes, very, very Welsh set in a Welsh rally where the notion is that this story pattern just keeps happening all over over and over in different iterations in different generations. I think we should congratulate Alan Garner at this point for appearing on the Booker long list. Oh, absolutely. I mean, another person who one might think is no longer writing for whatever reason, and there he pops up. Wonderful. He just keeps, he, yeah, he just keeps going. He's, he's, yes, he is quite amazing. And yes, and I think apart from that, there are, there are things that people might not actually be aware were Welsh in origin. Like notion of, I mean, the talk with Teg come up. You you get that a lot in in the sort of rural folklore type thing. The, the notion that there there are fair there are fair folk, fairy folk, magical folk who look human, and sometimes they will help. Sometimes they're malevolent. Again, they they sort of live in a a different reality from us. Again, so sometimes our, our paths cross with them, and sometimes we come off better for it and sometimes it can be very harmful it's that notion of you're never quite sure where you are with magic and of course uh, the whole arthurian links um, yeah i mean we're talking about the celtic world of storytelling of course yes there's a lot of shared and cross-fertilization but wales is full of places associated with king arthur and of course, yes. Merlin. It wasn't Merlin supposed to be Welsh in some versions of the Merlin story? Merlin is, yes, Neilson. He is, there is a Welsh. And of course, you've got the Welsh poet Taliesin, who was a, almost like an early type of Merlin. Yes. For yeah, the, yeah. Those, those of you on your inkling, Inklings Watch, Taliesin is the main character in the cycle of Arthurian poems written by Charles Williams, um, who's one of the Inklings. So there we are. Some, joining the dots here. Nice link there, yes. Thank you for listening to part one of this week's podcast. Come back next week to hear part two. Thank you for listening to Mythmakers. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you 
the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.